0: be seated. And uh, it's great to see everyone this morning. Good morning to you and um, as Pastor Kyle said, an early Merry Christmas. We are, if you are new with us, um, we are in a study of the Sermon on the Mount um, and we have been making our way through this uh, series since really the beginning of the fall and um, are continuing in that uh, text. And So we're going to be in Matthew uh, chapter 5, we're nearing the end of chapter 5, pick up in verse 43 if you want to turn your Bibles there, um, and we'll be there in a moment. But Jesus, what he is doing as I sort of help um, uh, sort of recap for you a little bit, this is our uh, 17th message in this series, so if you missed a lot of those, then I encourage you just to go back and uh, wherever you find a podcast, you can find um, our series and, and listen to these and catch up because it's very critical, as I'll allude to probably a number of times this Morning, um, that we not just sort of jump into this text and forget or not know all that Jesus has said uh, previously. Um, and right now we are closing this week a section, sort of the second section of Jesus' teaching this morning, um, where he has brought together or, or summarized how he has come about bringing his kingdom into reality. He has announced the arrival of the kingdom of God, and that's what he came to bring about, and how it interacts or sort of intersects with what the uh, religious people of the day, the Jews of that day understood about the law and, and, and how he interacted with that. And he has given all of these examples and sort of illustrated to the people how God's law that they had been taught, they had been taught the letter of the law and they had missed the heart of God. And so he's been unpacking these examples of this and, um, as, and we'll, we'll uh, look at those a little closer in a few moments. But all of this announcing this, that the arrival of his kingdom and in some ways, This, as we get to verse 43 this morning, this is a continuation of Jesus' words that we looked at last week, when he told us, told his followers that they were to turn the other cheek, or to give the cloak if someone were to sue you for your tunic, or to walk the extra mile if they asked you to go one, that you would go two. And ultimately what Jesus was doing as we looked at that text was he was teaching us And teaching his disciples in that day that they needed to think of themselves less or live lives of more selflessness. And If you think about that, as I've just pondered that this week, beginning in last week's text and working through the text of this week, preparing for this message. It really hits me that I think selflessness is a completely lost art in our culture today. We have lost almost any sense of the ability to consider others greater than ourselves. But this is exactly who we are called to be as Christians. People who like Christ, he modeled it perfectly for us. As Pastor Matt just alluded to in his prayer, we worship him. He's worthy of our worship because he humbled himself to become like us, laying down, in a sense, his authority. He was God. He's the God-man. But he let go of that so that he could be like us and then ultimately unlike us to go and die. And even to be killed on a cross. Philippians chapter 2. This is what Jesus did. He modeled selflessness for us perfectly. And yet as we consider and just look at ourselves in the mirror. I think as Christians too often. All of the world in in a, a grand sense. And then even us who call ourselves Christians. Have seemed to have lost this idea of being selfless. Selfishness. Me. My. Now. Is the word of the day that's why we have amazon they're failing it now right now but usually it's now <laughs> everything is about getting what i want and so we have to think about as we pick up from that thought from the previous few verses matthew five thirty-eight and following how do we go about being selfless How do we let go of the selfishness that consumes us, wanting always to get our way? Well, this is why Jesus began his teaching, as we've said over and over and over again. It's so critical that we not miss that Jesus had a purpose and a plan for the flow of this message. This sermon was delivered by Jesus to people, and Jesus... As I often have alluded to, if you think I prepare to give a message, Jesus himself prepared. He knew exactly what he was going to say. Every word was exactly where it was going to, needed to be and and, and said exactly what he intended to say. And so he began this message purposefully with the Beatitudes. And so that's why I say we can't just jump in. To this place in the text, and although we are glad that you're here and jumping in with us for the first time, I want to encourage you, we can't too quickly move past the Beatitudes, because it is ultimately impossible for us to be who Christ has called us to be if we don't really understand that. And we can't live out this call of, of selflessness. We are going to be a selfish people if we don't realize and see who we are in Christ through the Beatitudes. That's where he began. He began. And most of the frustration, most of our challenge comes from the fact that we forget these. See, we can't really be selfless. The true identity, true explanation or or, uh, unpacking of being a selfless person, it really is at the heart of being a Christian. There are others, there are non-believers, of course, that can sort of act in those momentarily. But as a a lifestyle, in a sense, as a way of being, selflessness is a result of us being made new in Christ. That's where it starts. And most of our frustration that we have in the world as Christians, though, is because we focus too quickly on doing something rather than being something. So when we hear Jesus' instructions to us to turn the other cheek, that's really hard. Because we want to do something, our natural reaction to being struck is to do something in response, right? That's just a normal thing. If I hurt you in some way, you have a choice to make in that moment. You can respond by retaliating, hurting back, doing whatever you might feel is the appropriate response. But it's going to be really hard to not do something. That's the natural response. So what do we have to do in place of that? What is Jesus calling us to do to be selfless? It's to not try and do something so quickly, but to focus on who he has made us to be. And if we even ponder just practically how that would feel, what that would look like. If I hurt you, if I did something against you, and you decided, okay, I'm not going, I'm going to try to be obedient to Jesus. The way that we do that is we have to first think of Who I am in Christ. We have to focus our energy on something else. Rather than focusing on doing something, we can think for a moment and ponder who we are in Christ. On being something. We can think about how we can honor Christ in response to this hurt. We can think about how we have been called to be salt and light in this world. And how this hurt and our response to this particular hurt could reflect that. We can think about how it is my own sin, my sinfulness that put Jesus on the cross. And so in, in pondering that truth and that reality, it causes me to slow down in my reaction. So you can see, practically speaking, how is it that we can go about living this life of selflessness and turning the other cheek and going the extra mile? Is by not trying to respond with action so quickly, but pondering and considering Jesus' words to us and who he's called us to be. And so he gave us the Beatitudes. He said, this is who a Christian is. This is what a Christian looks like. This is who I have made you to be when I gave you a new heart. If you're a Christian, these statements of Christ, beginning in Matthew chapter 5, 1 and following, 1 through 12, they define you. And then because of that, he says, now I've given you a purpose. I made you this so that you could be salt and light. And as we've said week after week, as we've been working through this next section, the way that we operate as salt and light in the world is that we deal with the world differently than the world expects. And we deal with the world differently than all of the rest of the world and how they deal with something. So when we think about how we live our lives and how we are to be salt and light in this world, we need to focus less on doing things and focus more on our calling on who God has created us to be and focus On letting go of what we would desire and looking to Christ first. See the selfless person is selfless because he believes the Beatitudes are true. When we read these statements... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We truly believe as Christians that our poverty before God, our acknowledgement of how helpless we are before God, it is what allows us to be, to be recipients or be welcomed into the kingdom of God. That if we come to God with pridefulness, with boastfulness, with believing and saying to God in a sort of religious sense, look God, I've got it pretty well all together. I'm a pretty good guy. I've done things well. I mean, I didn't beat my neighbor up when he slapped me the other day and I did. we just start going into the law God's going to say to us that's not enough I'm sorry you don't measure up because we know our own hearts are sinful blessed are the poor in spirit though the one who's humbled before God and recognizes how desperate we are for God that's the one who is going to receive entrance into the kingdom blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth again this meekness humility before God Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those of us who realize that we don't find righteousness from inside ourselves, but that righteousness is a gift from God. We believe this is true. That is who can be selfless. See, only by believing things is because we know these are true, then we can go out and live. And here is, look at all those promises. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They shall be comforted. They shall inherit the earth. They shall be satisfied. We believe these statements of Christ are true. And that's what motivates us and what drives us to live lives that are different, that look different than the rest of the world. The world doesn't believe these things. Just look at our advertisements. The world says, if you want something, you must make it happen. The world says that you're good enough, just do it. The world says if you want to have it, there's nothing wrong with anything that you might want to have. So just take it. Look at, think of all the statements that we, the world teaches us and that we sometimes believe as a result of just sort of osmosis around us. That's not what the world believes. But we believe these statements are true. And that is what allows us to turn the other cheek so Jesus having begun that idea of how we interact with the world and those who would harm us those who would hurt us he takes the statement and I said last week that we've had trouble since kindergarten kindergarten turning the other cheek that's been a challenging statement of Jesus for us to really live out and believe now he doubles down he says don't just turn the other cheek but love the person that strikes you love your enemy the one that hates you and when we read this I don't know about you I find that at a just moment, sort of at a first glance reading, I'm like, that's impossible, God. I can't love someone who hates me. How how could I do that? That doesn't, it's just almost irreconcilable. Well, Jesus has said it. And he said, this is who we are. He has said this is how we are to live. He has taught us this truth. And so we better spend some time trying to understand what he was saying and how it would be possible for us to live this out. So, Jesus in verse 43 begins by saying, as he said in each of these sections, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So once again, Jesus is taking this statement of the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. And that when he begins these, uh, these sections by saying, you have heard that it was said, just as a very brief reminder, what he is doing there is he is alluding to the fact that the people of God had been led and taught by Pharisees, religious leaders, and the way they taught the people was orally, they sort of repeated or, or, or um, sort of uh, taught the word of God. They couldn't read the word of God. They didn't have the blessing of being able to read it like we do, and so they just passed it down orally. And he's showing them, well, you have heard this is what you have been taught. But in my kingdom, as people who are now peacemakers, who are now meek, who are now the uh, have been welcomed into the kingdom of God. Let me show you what the law really meant, what the heart of God behind the law was. See, the law says, as he began the very first section, the law says don't murder. I say don't even get angry with someone. The law says don't uh, uh, commit adultery. I say don't even look upon another with lust. The law says don't take oaths or only take oaths in these certain situations. I say just let your yes be yes and your no be no. You don't need to do anything. Don't swear in my name. The law says you can take an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. I say turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. The law says that you should not... Or that you must love your neighbor. I take that and let me give you the heart of God is that you would love even your enemy. Jesus builds upon. He takes what the law has said. He says, let me show you the heart of these things. So we first have to deal with, as we look at the text, what the Pharisees had taught them. The people had been taught that were listening to Jesus on this hillside. They had been taught, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, you're all biblical scholars, and so I know you're right now asking yourself, I don't ever remember reading to hate your enemies in the Bible. I don't, I'm not sure where they were quoting that from. And because you're so smart, I'll give you an A. You're right. That's not anywhere in Scripture. The, the idea of hating your enemies is not ever in Scripture. This isn't a law that the Pharisees were teaching by repeating something that was in the, found in the Old Testament as some of the previous examples that Jesus had given. No, what the Pharisees were doing at this point, they were, in a sense, taking a lot of various ideas of their history and the way that God had called them to to move and, and do things in their past as Jewish people, and it sort of created this idea that they were to love their neighbor, and the one who was a neighbor was fellow Jews. So they were called to love, according to the law that the Pharisees were teaching in that day, love people that are like you that are fellow Jewish people. But hate anyone who is not, who is a Gentile. Anyone who is other than you, it's okay to hate them. And the reason that they had come up with this law, they had sort of built this logic around the idea that when God had sent his people into the promised land, he had told his people to eradicate every other people that were in possession that were living in that land at the time. And why did God do that? Because he wanted his people to be completely other, set apart as holy unto him alone. And so he said, I'm going to give you the promised land, you're going to enter into this land and there are evil people that have inhabited this land before, I'm Turning them over to you. You will be able to wipe them out so that you will be pure and holy and set apart for me. So the Pharisees with that idea in mind, they say, well, surely God won't mind if we just hate anybody that's not like us. If we just shove them out and that's how we should treat other people that are Gentiles. This is how they had lived. And so anyone who was not Jewish, according to the Jewish teaching of the day, was unclean, was evil was a dog. They would, they, the hatred that existed between Jew and Gentile was really strong. We've talked about this before in our past as we've worked through other texts in the Bible. It was, there was great contempt between these two groups of people. By the way, We've been walking through the book of Acts in our men's and women's Bible study. This is why Paul, as he would go into the synagogues and begin to teach and then go off to the Gentiles, the Jewish leaders chased him out of every city that he went into. Is because Paul would go and he would share the gospel with the Gentiles. People that they had been taught was okay to hate them. And Paul said, I'd be cut off as a former Pharisee. I'd be cut off as a Jew and just cut off from God altogether if I could reach even one of my Jewish brothers, and convince him that the gospel is good news, is the truth of God. This is what Paul, and so Paul was hated because he didn't hold to this law. He didn't hate his enemy. He loved the Gentile enemy of his day. And so the Pharisees had taught the people this, and Jesus says, No, let me tell you something completely different. You've been taught that it's okay to love just those who are like you, just those who believe like you, just those who are fellow Jewish people. I'm going to tell you that you must also love your enemies. Not just those who are like you, but those who see the world, live in the world completely differently than you do. Love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. So... This is what the Pharisees had taught the people and Jesus comes in saying in my kingdom because of who I've created you to be, Beatitudes, I give you this new teaching and this is the heart of God. And so we have to ask ourselves, this this is so hard, how are we to love our enemy? How are we to love the one who attacks us, who persecutes us? Only a Christian can do this. It's impossible for someone who doesn't know Christ to love, to truly love. Other people can accommodate an enemy, other people can be in the same room and not immediately go to battle with them. But to truly love someone, this is not a small word, this is not just sort of letting them get by. This isn't coming to the restaurant and not hurling insults at them and just saying, well, I see them over there, but I'm just going to kind of go all skirt and I'll I'll, I'll go to this side. No, this is love, which means that you are pursuing them, that you're engaging them, that you care for them, that their burdens are your burdens, your enemy, the one who hates you and the one who persecutes you. Jesus says you must love them. Now, I don't have to tell you that in our current situation, present modern day that this seems to be completely foreign how could we live this way ultimately i i see in jesus's teaching as we have worked our way through this text that this type of selflessness to love our enemy this is the pinnacle of what it means to be a christian to live out christ's calling on our lives We not only don't strike back those who would strike us, we go so far as to love them. And how badly we have missed this. Look all around. Have you noticed how much hate exists in our world right now? Have you seen the divisions that exist? Everywhere we turn, it's attacking one group or another, one over the other. Constantly. Attacking one another in mass, just sort of letting go of this hatred and division running rampant in our world. And as I consider and look at the situation of our current context, I have to ask, where is the church? Where are the Christians? Where are the people that take Jesus at his word when he says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who would persecute you. How is the world going to ever have any idea what Jesus looks like when the Christians participate in the same silliness, hatred, division, all that the rest of the world participates in? The world is clamoring for an answer, for hope, for joy, for peace, for Christ. They are desperate for something, and the Christian community is almost silent or is just equally in, engaged and in, in, in participating in the same division, the divisiveness and hatred towards other people who are not like them. This is Jesus' words. How in the world can we read our Bibles? And hear Jesus' commands here and not understand that the calling on our lives is to have an impact on our world. And the way we do that is by not participating and looking completely other than the rest of the world. By displaying a Christ-like love and grace for those who strike us. Who, yes, attack us. Who, yes, persecute us. Who, yes, pass laws against the things that we believe in. Who try to do anything they, do, they can do to make our lives hard. Jesus says, these are the very people I call you to love and to pray for. And our problem is, is that we've forgotten who we are. We've forgotten the Beatitudes. We've forgotten... That Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart. This is what Jesus has used, the statements that Jesus uses to describe us. We become so bent. On not letting go of our way of life or not allowing someone to take our desires and our hopes and dreams and our possessions and our whatever that might be from us. And we have got these death grips on whatever we hold as sacred and as hopeful and whatever we think holds us together that we've forgotten the very one who gave his life for us so that we might be alive at all. We would not have life. We would be, as the Bible says, dead in our trespasses, if not for the life that we have in Christ. And when Jesus says these words, we have to listen. Sadly, too many Christians have become like Pharisees. We love our Christian brothers and sisters. We love those who worship like we worship. We love those who believe like like we believe. Anyone that agrees with us, we are fine with. But anyone that disagrees with anything that we hold as sacred, we will attack and try and kill. And we will have anger and resentment and completely do everything we can to destroy them. We hate those who aren't us, just like the Pharisees hated the Gentile. We hate those who we see as opposing God, just like the Pharisees believed that they were doing on behalf of God. We hate the very ones that Jesus has sent us into the world to, uh, to show his light to. The very people who are far off from God. God has said, I will send my people. They will do greater things than I. That's what Jesus said. That's us. That's the church. And Jesus established his church so that we might go into the world and display who he is to the world. We can't do that if we don't love them, sincerely love them. And the reality is we have to recognize that what tempts us to that end, what leads us astray, isn't it the height of pride? Just the epitome of our pridefulness That we find it and we say to ourselves, it's my responsibility to fight battles that are only God's. That we have to stand against the enemies of God. Do we not remember that we too were once enemies of God? That he would have been right to pour out his wrath upon us until Jesus interceded for us and came for us. And how did Jesus do that? He did that by, by sending someone I don't know who a pastor, a mother, a father, a friend, a, a coworker, someone that loved you in spite of your sinfulness, loved you like Jesus would love you. All of this coming back to this idea of us being selfless. If we want to hear Jesus' teaching on this further or consider. His heart, we can turn to Matthew chapter 18. In Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 23, Jesus is teaching on the idea of forgiveness, but he illustrates in this teaching what it looks like or this calling on our lives and gives us a great counterbalance to what we see so often in the culture right now. Therefore, this is Jesus speaking, a parable to describe what forgiveness should look like. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant, the one who owed this great king this amazing amount of debt, the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of the pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. By the way, a pittance compared to what this servant had owed the master and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servant saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and they reported to their master all that had taken place. Then the master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servants as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. It's the height of pride. For us to think to ourselves, when Jesus calls us to love our enemies, that we say, no, I know better than you, Jesus. I know you forgave me of all of my debts, but I need to defend you. God doesn't need his people to defend him or his truth. The Holy Spirit is much more powerful than any one of us. And the Holy Spirit is the only one that can rightly divide our hearts. And bring us to the truth. It's only the power of the spirit. And so we as a people. What Jesus instructs us to do. Is to be salt and light. Not to be the Holy Spirit. Salt and light. Preserve. Slow down the decay and death that exists in the world. How do we do that? As we already preach this text. Go back and listen to it. We, We live as Christ lived. With grace and mercy. How are we light? We go into the dark places and we reflect Christ in his ways and the way that he lived towards others. We have to remember who we are. When we remember who we were, that is what empowers us, gives us the capacity to go to the person who hates us and love them. I would ask this question. Do we actually, do you know the person in your mind that hates you, that is persecuting you, that believes differently than any way that you believe, thinks about the world differently than you do, and all of these things, do you actually know them? Do they have a face and a name? Have they been in your home? These are the questions that Christians should be asking. How can we love them if we don't engage with them, if we don't pursue them? This is what Jesus has called us to do. And when we remember that we too were once the enemies of God, it makes it so much easier for us to look at those who we view as our enemies, those who seem to to come against us and to love them. But I also love the way Jesus instructs us. He says, love your enemies. And he adds this statement all one sentence and pray for them pray for those who persecute you. I think Jesus, knowing our condition, knowing our sinful heart, he realizes that we're going to need a little help in this. And what I've found, and what I, just following Jesus' words here, that it becomes a lot easier to love someone when I've prayed for them. As we pray for someone, and we step into that hard place, have you ever found it hard to pray for someone? Felt You had to force yourself to get on your knees before God on behalf of that person because of whatever they had done to you, the oppression that you felt just in your heart against them. But it becomes a lot easier to love someone when we begin to pray for them. And as we pray for them, what happens is we remember who we are before God. See, when we pray... What happens when we pray is we are humbling ourselves before God. We are getting below him, beneath him. And as the word says here we are remembering that he is sovereign over all things he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good sends rain on the just and on the unjust jesus is saying in that statement that god is over all of these things he is supreme over all and so you think that god is that you need to help god shine light in this dark place or help god to stand against this evil or this darkness god is over all these things and when we pray we're reminded of that we humble ourselves Before God. And we remember that he's over all of these things. We also remember when we pray. Where we stand. As his servant. We lay our lives down. Bare before God. And so as we pray for the one. Our enemy. Those that hate us. That attack us. That do all of whatever they might be doing against you. I don't know those personal things in your life that might have happened to you. But I do know that when you begin to pray for that person. You put yourself below God in such a way that he can move on our hearts and he can show us who we are through him and ultimately begin to help soften our hearts towards that person. And remind us that he will show mercy to whom he will show mercy and ultimately he will have vengeance against who he will have vengeance. That's up to him. That's why we hold on to the promises of scripture Jesus is the one who is sovereign, who is in control of these things. And so he will deal rightly with all things. As Jesus continues, he describes how easy it is for us to do, to love our neighbor, and really just says, That's not what I've called you to. He says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? That's easy. It's easy for me to love all of you. Not that you all love me unconditionally, but by and large, you're pretty sweet to me. It's not hard for me to love you and to do whatever it is that you might ask. It's hard for me to love those who attack me for my beliefs, who believe that I am evil for what I stand for. That's what's challenging. He says, it's easy to love the one who loves you. Even the tax collectors do that. The tax collector in that day, the worst, by the way. My grandfather served and worked for the IRS. He wasn't truly a tax man, but he, did, he was employed by the IRS. And so I, I know a little bit about what people think about tax people, even in our day. We don't like the IRS guy. We don't like taxes. And the same is even more so the case then. Or if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing differently than others? Who doesn't welcome their brother or their sister with love and with a hug and with joy? Even, he says, and this is where he gets to the heart of the Pharisees' teaching. Don't even the Gentiles do that, he says? Pharisees have taught you to love your neighbor and to hate your enemy. And look, the Gentiles even do what the Pharisees teach. That doesn't make you holy. That doesn't make you set apart by God. That makes you just like the rest of the world, is what he's saying there. If you love those who love you. But let me tell you, I have called you to be salt and light. I have taught you something differently. I have taught you a different way. That's what it means to love your enemy. That's why I've called you to love your enemy. Because this is how my radical, transformative power at work within you brings my kingdom to bear. As we go out into the world and we don't just love those who love us. But we even love our enemies. The world doesn't know what to do with that. They don't know how to react to that. They, don't, they have no way to reconcile. I just want you to imagine this. So somebody strikes me on the cheek. I say, hey, I got this one too. You want that? Strikes me on the other cheek. And I turn and I say, come on, come on, big boy. Let me give you a hug. <laughs> What's the world going to do? They're going to look at us like we're crazy. That's radical. That's not the way the world operates. Somebody strikes us. What do we do? I will exercise, I will find you, I will hunt you down. What does Liam Neeson say? I will kill you. That's what we do when someone comes against us or does something against us. But Jesus says, no, we are to love them. And as we love, just imagine the radical picture of Christ-like mercy and grace that the world sees when we live this calling out. When we do what Jesus has told us to do. And by the way, not because we have the power to do it on our own, but because we believe his words are true. And that Holy Spirit empowerment is at work in us and drives us to that. Jesus says back to verse 44 and 45. That as we love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He he says this very interesting line. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. He connects this calling to loving enemies, to the sonship. And you are thinking to yourself, I've heard this statement of Jesus about sons being called sons. And you're right. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. You know what a peacemaker is? Someone who loves his enemy. Loves them like Christ would love them. Brings peace where division and hatred and the enemy of God is looking to reign. And we take down territory. You want to take down territory from the enemy? You want to remove his power over an area? Let me tell you how you do that. You don't do that by doing what the world does and hating back. You do that by stepping into that place and loving unconditionally. And the enemy recoils as light comes in, as salt comes in, and eradicates death that would reign when hatred is the only thing that exists. When we love as Christ love, and we bring that love into those places where we are hated and there is hatred, any hardship that exists, that love creates light and preserves and it does something supernatural. That's why Jesus said to do this. This is why he called us to this because he is doing the work of building his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Blessed are the peacemakers, those who love their enemies and bring them together. They shall be called sons of God. Jesus closes this section with this very strange and challenging statement. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word perfect there is really the idea of completeness. And what Jesus is alluding to, what he is connecting, the completeness of God. God is complete because he is completely holy. And he is sort of connecting this teaching from the Old Testament. You have heard that it was said, you are my people and you shall be holy as I am holy. And Jesus is telling us and telling his disciples that as we love even our enemies, that we will display a holiness of God, a complete otherness of God that only comes from him. We must be holy. Holy, as our Father is holy. This calling, we know we're not going to be perfect, and Jesus isn't commanding that we must be perfect. We know that doesn't reconcile with the message of his gospel. But what he's saying is, he calls us to this perfection, is this perfectly holy, this pursuit of holiness, this constant desire for looking differently than the rest of the world. And so as we strive to live for Christ, to be Salt and light. The means for accomplishing that. The means that God will use to allow us to do that. It's allow us to trust his word. Allow us to believe the truth that he has said. And as a result, to even love our enemies. And imagine this world, if we could do that. What would this world look like if the church, not just this church, but the church of God around this country and the world loved like Jesus has loved us even when we were his enemies? I believe the world would be turned upside down, radically transformed. So let's pray and ask Jesus to help accomplish this hard task. Lord Jesus, we do need your help. I know in my flesh this seems impossible. How can I love my enemy? How can I love the one who hates me? How can I love the one that I feel under constant attack? I can only do that because... Of who you have made me to be. Because I believe your word. Because I trust you when you said. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called sons of God. And so I pray that as a church. That we would hold on to that promise Lord that we would believe you and that we would realize that we are sons and daughters of the Most High King, that our eternity is secure, that there is nothing in this world that can take away from us what you have secured for us through the cross. And because we know that is true, we can live in this world with open hands. We can live in this world not trying to cling to our way, not trying to ensure that we defend you That we stand up for you, but we just live for you and we allow you to live through us. Holy Spirit, help us to be that type of people. Give us the humility and the grace to be the salt and light you have called us to be. We pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. The name of that song is all I have is Christ. And so I pray that perhaps tomorrow you're going to come under attack and somebody's going to hate you. Just look up the words of that song and just re sing that. Listen to those words. All I have is Christ. And I was one who was once running a hell bound race. And then he interceded for me as that person who hates me and attacks me and wants to do whatever he might want to do to me. I, I entrust to Christ. My responsibility is to just love him, her as Christ would. Um, I want to just give you a few announcements before we dismiss about our coming week. Um, it is Christmas week, and we are gathering for Christmas Eve service at 3, 5, and 7 o'clock. So 3, 5, and 7 p.m. Our statisticians tell me that the 5 o'clock, I don't know how they know this, but they're just smart people, that the 5 o'clock might be the most crowded one. And so if you're looking for more space, the 3 or the 7 might be your, your better option. Uh, if you have littles, uh, right after the 3 o'clock for our, our youngest families, there's going to be some activities in our Cafe following our 3 o'clock service, so that's our, uh, a little bit of a way for us to incentivize your attendance, and we did that 3 o'clock because we think it's around nap time. Um, it's uh, teenagers nap until 3 o'clock, so that's kind of where I'm at, but um, if you're on that wavelength, then uh, go ahead and uh, make that 3 o'clock your time. Also, we, are, uh, we want to ensure that we can welcome as many guests, we believe, um, as happens annually uh, for our church, that our Christmas Eve service, we have a lot of family information out of town, as well as neighbors that come and join us in that service. And we want to make it as welcoming as possible. And so uh, we need some help with a parking team. We have a new parking lot. I don't know if this is a new building for if you haven't been with us very long. And so um, if you'd be willing to help us uh, with the parking team, um, if you'd find Chris Kaufman, he's at the back of the room um, and you can, or, or uh, Pastor Kyle, one of those two guys and just be willing to serve at one of those hours to help out with parking. We'd really um, appreciate um, that. Help. Also, on our calendar, on the twenty seventh, right after Christmas, we will have one family gathering at ten thirty. We'll only meet at ten thirty um, on December twenty seventh, and then this morning was our last. Uh, we. I don't know, forever, I'll say, until Christ returns, perhaps, 8.30 uh, service. Our 8.30 service time is moving to 9 a.m. We now have the technology to be able to stream and do some of the things that we couldn't do and how we landed at 8.30. That's a little peek behind the curtain. But um, so if you want to uh, come at, uh, you can, I gave the 8.30 service, told them they get a 30-minute extra sleep now. They can come in. Or if you want to come a little earlier and then go have brunch, the 9 o'clock service on January 3rd, we begin that new service time of 9 and 10. Ten thirty, um, and so be a part of that. Lastly, um, we are, uh, as you can tell, under construction. You know, we love our drywall here. Uh, this week, it'll get you know cleaned, or something will happen to that. I don't know how that works, but anyway, some they'll do something to that, and it's going to look like that wall. Hopefully, by Christmas Eve. But uh, we are getting new floors in our kids' church area tomorrow, um, and uh, that's going to be that's That space is going to be set up and ready as an overflow for Christmas Eve service. So, if you have a few moments now. We're going to move everything out of that room after you get your kids. So if you're getting kids, please go grab them for us. Um, And then um, just kind of put them in the cafe and give them a cup of coffee and then come back in and help us uh, uh, tear down that kid's church. That would be great. So, um, finally, our elders will be spaced down front around the room, and uh, I would just love if we can pray for you and encourage you in any way. Last week, a couple came forward that they had received some challenging news of their pregnancy. We were able to pray for them, and I give glory to God that they had a follow-up on Tuesday morning that that baby is perfectly healthy. And so, um, just... Uh, The power of prayer, and um, and so if you need prayer, don't be don't be shy. Um, I'm going to throw on a mask. Our elders will be down here. We'd love to encourage you in any way we can. So until then, love you guys. Go grab your kiddos, coffee, and tear down. Have a great week. We'll see you Christmas Eve.
1: Thanks for listening to the preaching of God's word at City Church Melissa. We meet Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. at 2300 Vineyard Hill Lane, and we look forward to seeing you there soon. City Church Melissa, for the glory of God and the good of the city.